Well, welcome visitors and cottagers and uh, people that are here. My name is Paul Graham and I'm a uh, lead teaching pastor here. And uh, we are just beginning a new series actually, so you've come at a good time. Uh, we're starting the book of Colossians. And so if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, there should be a Bible if you don't have one in the seat back in front of you or near you. And uh, if you don't personally own a Bible, you can take that Bible. This is a new thing I'm doing now. I'm just giving away all our Bibles. And so if you don't personally own a Bible, please take that one with you when you go today. Uh, you should have a Bible. Uh, or put it on your smartphone or whatever, however you want to join with us. The book of Colossians uh, was written around 62 AD, written by the Apostle Paul. I'm sure many of you realize most of the New Testament, New Testament letters were written by Paul. And it was written while he was in prison, likely while he was in prison in Rome. Uh, he spent a couple of years in uh, Caesarea in prison, and then he moved to Rome and he was in prison. This is probably while he was in Rome. Um, and he's written to a church called Colossae, or Colossae, and that's why it's called Colossians, because that's where the church is at that city. And we don't have any record of him ever visiting. He probably never went to the church or visited the people in Colossae. And so his missionary journeys kind of went around that city to the north and the south, but never through. And if you're observant and you notice in chapter 2, verse 1, he actually mentions that he's struggling and praying specifically for people who may never have met him face to face. And so we have a pretty good idea that he's never met these people. And so he's writing this short little letter. It's only four chapters. And uh, it's short, and that makes it dense. And it's really unfair how fast I'm going to go through it in six or seven weeks. Um, there's a lot to do in there. It's, it's short, and we're sure... When, when Paul writes such a concise letter, it's just as you write your letters, when you write something that short, you're making sure that you're only putting in the most crucial information. And so Paul is sticking to the very heart of the message of the gospel and the most direct imperatives, which is, are things you should do in light of something. And he's sticking to the most direct implications, which are things that we must accept because of something. So he's sticking to the most direct and core imperatives and implications of the gospel. And there's not a lot of explanation that he gives around the things that he teaches here. There's not a lot of elaboration on the truth that the Apostle Paul packs in here. And so we will have to be careful as we go through it not to skim. And so as you read Colossians, you cannot skim it. Because he has condensed it down so tightly here. He doesn't have 16 chapters or whatever to deal with. He's got four small chapters to, to communicate what's on his heart to these Christians in the city of, of Colossae. And he really wants to encourage them. And, and we need to really see what it is that he's teaching in this letter. And he's writing this letter because he is on one hand very encouraged by this church. He's very encouraged. He starts out very happy for them and who they are, uh, that it's bearing much fruit by its faith. And on the other hand, he's concerned, like the church in Galatia, what he wrote the letter of Galatians to, and, and Corinth, which he wrote the letter of Corinthians to, he's, he's concerned that like Galatia and like Corinth and other churches, that this church now, there's false teaching starting to spring up in this church. And that the Christians who started so strong are starting to be distracted by the things that people are telling them and that this must be guarded against. And so Paul lays out the true gospel and he exposes false, false gospels and he delivers warnings and he gives instructions and he encourages and he packs all of that into four chapters. Now, to begin Colossians 1, 1 to 14, George Budd actually preached Colossians 1, 1 to 14 at my induction ceremony here two and a half years ago. That was his text. And 
I'm pretty sure I can't do a better job than he did. So if you want to hear a great sermon on Colossians 1, 1 to 14, then you can go on the website and listen to George Budd preach on Colossians uh, 1, 1 to 14, because he did an amazing job. So I'm not even going to try and top it. I'm going to pick up where he left off at about verse 13 and tackle the next major thought that Paul outlines to the people at Colossae, and he puts forward to his Christian brothers and sisters in the city. And Paul's chief concern in this letter, again, is that these Christians in this city hold fast to and continue to live in the power of the true gospel. And you see that in verse 5. He says, you heard the word of truth. And then in verse 6, he says, you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. In verse 9, he says, you would be filled with knowledge. And then in verse 10, he says, increasing in knowledge. And so it's clear, Paul is eager that their faith be based on truth and in knowledge. Not just in some sort of ideas or philosophies or ideals or, or some other gospel, but he wants it to be the true gospel that is filled and increased in knowledge. And so very early on, he establishes the true gospel a very concise summary of what God has done through Christ by the cross for us. And so we're starting at verse 11, 1 to 20, or Colossians 1, 11 to 23. And uh, I'm just going to read it again so that we hear what Paul is saying here to these people in the city. He says, and I'm just turning it into a sentence to begin verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, was made a minister. That's dense. Like There is a lot going on in there. We could spend like five weeks just on that. But I don't have five weeks. we got a lot of Bible to get through. So we're just going to do this all in one take today. But there's a lot being said there. But I think if we break it down into smaller bites, we can digest it. And so I've sort of broken this down into four parts so that we can understand the impact of what Paul is saying here. In four sections, that just lets us see exactly what Paul and how Paul is expressing the gospel, how he's expressing what God has done for us. 
And so first thing that we see is that the Father is doing something. It's the Father that has taken action in verses 12 to 14. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance. For He, that's He the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His, that's the Father's Son, in whom we have redemption. And I think it's important here that we see that it's the Father who whom thanks is being given to. And it's the Father who has taken action. It's the Father who has qualified us. It is the Father who is rescuing us. It is the Father that has changed our citizenship from one kingdom to another kingdom. It's the Father who redeems and forgives. It's the Father. It's not us. There's nothing we can do to accomplish these things. It's the Father that has to act. If you look at those verbs of those things that he's done, moved us from darkness to light and, and qualified us and redeemed us and forgiven us, we can't do any of those things. The Father has to do it. John 3.16, our favorite verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. The Father loved. The Father gave. Or Romans 5.8, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was God that showed the love. Or Galatians 4, four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God sent forth. It is God who acts. And that's the first thing we have to see in the gospel message is that it's God the Father who has acted for us. And it's important for Paul to get this across because we have to avoid a couple of very dangerous ways of thinking about the gospel. And the first sort of dangerous way we can think about the gospel is that the Father is somehow against us, but Jesus is for us. Have you ever felt that way? Right? In the beginning, the beginning of everything of the gospel is not Jesus, but the Father. Our requalification, our redemption, our salvation. It was the Father's idea. He was the first to act. It was He who loved. He desired. God the Father does not need to be persuaded to love us, or to redeem us, or to requalify us, or to accept us. He does not need to be pleaded with to begrudgingly accept us against His better judgment you know, as the atonement or the advocacy of Jesus is somehow wrongly portrayed. You know, there are old hymns out there that are very poetic and they're very beautifully written and they have these gorgeous verses about how Jesus is pleading by his blood for us. And they're very stirring hymns, but they're theologically inaccurate because Jesus does not have to plead with the Father on our behalf. It was God's idea to rescue us. And so I know when I was younger, I used to think, You know, God the Father was angry at me, but thank goodness for Jesus. But that's not the way it goes. It's not that God is angry and Jesus, you know, is somehow, you know, intervening for us. That's that's true. But God loves us as much as Jesus does. It was God's idea to rescue us. You know, and Jesus has just as much judgment for us as the Father does. You know, he says, I've come to set, you know, daughter against mother-in-law and son against father. I've come to divide family. I come with a sword. You know, so we can't get mixed up here and think, you know, God somehow is angry with us and Jesus, you know, thank goodness is saving us. It is thank goodness that that Jesus is saving us, but not because the Father is so angry, but because it was God the Father who acted in this way to have this redemption plan for us. You look in John 10, 28 to 29, it sort of spells out what I'm talking about. It says, I give them eternal life. This is Jesus. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me. It's the Father who has given us to the Son. Is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. 
It's the Father that holds us just like the Son holds us. It's the Father that gave us to the Son. And so maybe you had that feeling in the past or you have that feeling sort of grow on you. And I did in my early faith that that somehow God was angry with me, but Jesus loved me. And you can't let that thinking go on for too long or you start to separate the Trinity and you start to separate the goodness and the holiness and the love of the Father from the goodness and holiness and love of the Son. And you can't separate them. And so Paul wants to be clear here that it's the Father who is acting and all these affirmations of the Father's love. And then secondly, it's important we understand that it's the Father who's acting because we have to understand that we can't do anything to qualify or redeem or forgive or save ourselves. The glory of the gospel and what has to be celebrated and what Paul is celebrating here and and fills him with joy and should fill us with joy is that it's not based on anything we're able to do. If the gospel doesn't even start with Jesus, it certainly doesn't start with us. It starts with the Father. We can't do any of these things that are listed here. Only God can do them. And we don't see anywhere in this text or anywhere in the Bible where Paul or any of the other disciples that are writing in the New Testament, none of them are ever celebrating all the things that we have done for the Father. Did you ever read that anywhere? Let's celebrate all the great things that we have done for the Father. No, that is not the heart of the gospel. It's the celebration of what the Father has done for us. Because we can't do these things. The joy of Paul in the gospel is the celebration of one clear reality of how much the Father has done for us. And then in the second part, as you go through here in verses 15 to 20, Paul describes in what way the Father has done it. And how has God the Father acted? He's acted through the Son, verses 15 to 20. He says, He... The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. And thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities and all things have been created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He goes on, He's the head of the church, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. All these things. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, the Son. He says it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and to reconcile all things to Himself. And so God has accomplished all these things, which is amazing, but He's accomplished all these things through the Son. And Paul wants to make crystal clear how it is that God is able to accomplish this through Jesus. How can God accomplish all this redemption and moving us from lightness to dark and qualifying us and, and, and redeeming us and reconciling us? He's able to do it because of who the person of Jesus is. Because He is the Son of God. He's the image of the invisible God. God is spirit. No man has seen God except that God has made Himself manifest or God has made Himself present with us by Jesus. And that word image, icon, in Greek is more than a reflection. The word icon in the Greek means the stamp or the imprint or the physical representation of something. It's not just a reflection. It's not just a picture. It is the physical, true physical form of God. You compare, say, in Hebrews 10.1, if you are interested in going deeper into that understanding of how Jesus is the image of God. And in Hebrews 10.1, it says, The law was a shadow of what was to come. It, the law, was not the true form. In other words, it was not the icon of those realities. And so in Hebrews 10, 1, we get a great description of what that Greek word means. It, the word icon does not mean just a shadow or just an image. Jesus is not just a picture or just a presentation of who God is. He is the true form of God. 
Just as the law was not the true form, Jesus is the true form. And then it goes on about who Jesus is. He says he's the firstborn of all creation. And we have to be careful here, not to be confused with he was the first created being, as some people will try to teach. Paul does not want any sort of false gospel to be confusing for these people in Colossae. He wants to set them the true gospel. And he is not saying that Jesus is the first created being. He is the firstborn in terms of rank, in terms of order. And that word firstborn is used in Scripture to delimitate the order of things, not necessarily uh, when you were born. So in other words, in, in Exodus 4.22, we see it and in Jeremiah 31.9, where God refers to Israel as the nation firstborn. This is my firstborn nation. Well, Israel was not the first nation. There was lots of nations before Israel. So what is God saying about Israel? Not that they were the first ever nation, but that they have been set in rank as first in order of the nations. That God has put them first in rank. And likewise, Jesus is first in rank in creation. And Paul even explains the reason why Jesus has that title. Not because he was God's first creation, but because he created everything. Paul goes on to say, for or because all things in heaven and on earth. He's the firstborn of creation because all things on heaven and on earth were created through him. And so we have to understand that when God is speaking here, when Paul is is explaining the gospel here, he's saying Jesus is the stamp, the physical presence, the reality of God among us. And that he is the firstborn, not the first created, but he is the firstborn because he created all things. He's first in order over all creation because all of creation came by him and through him and for him. And then Paul goes on, in case there is any doubt, he gives Jesus the quality or the uh, characteristic of omnipotence. And he says, through him all things hold together. Jesus is omnipotent. It is by his power that all things hold together. Again, going to Hebrews 1.3, it says the Son is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Like This is just incredible. Paul is trying to make it crystal clear who Jesus is and how God is able to accomplish all these things because of the reality of who Jesus is. And then he says he's the firstborn, or the head of the church. Obviously, he's the head of the church and the head of the body, and he is the beginning of the church. And he's the firstborn from the dead. He's also the first of us to receive the new glorified body that God is granting us. There were people who were raised from the dead, right? You remember Lazarus was raised from the dead and and other people were raised from the dead, but they were just raised back into this body and they had to die again. When Jesus was resurrected, he was resurrected and raised from the dead into his glorified body that is eternal and will never die. And that's the glorified body. That's who he is the firstborn of, of us, the first to receive the glorified body that we intend to inhabit for eternity. And so he's the firstborn in that regard too. And so Jesus is the first, the first, the first, the image of God with all the powers of God. And Paul's thinking, well, maybe it's not clear yet, so I'm going to say it another way. He says, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. That verb fullness applies to God in the sentence. And so it says that basically God was happy to allow all of his fullness to dwell in Jesus. Or if you go to Philippians, when Jesus says that equality with God was not something that he grasped, but that he humbled himself. Right. So this idea that God fully is represented in Jesus and Jesus is fully God. He's holy God, perfect in authority and first in everything and all-powerful and yet holy man, able to stand in for us and bear what we could not bear. 
This is the important thing. This is why Paul has to be clear here. The Father is acting, but he's acting through Jesus, who is holy God, but is also yet at the same time holy human. And because he's holy human, he can stand in for us and represent us and bear on himself what we could not bear ourselves and satisfy a law that we could not meet the demand of. That is the Jesus that Paul is proclaiming in preeminence here in Colossians. But then how did God do it? Why did God act through Jesus? God the Father's taken action. He's taken action through Jesus. But how did he do it? And Paul says there's only one way that it happened. There's one way that all this stuff happens that God did for us out of his love for us. And it's verse 20. He says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That's it. That's how it's done, through the blood of the cross. Paul doesn't give any other reason or any other explanation as to how God did this. This whole section of text is the good news of the gospel of how God the Father loved us and acted in our behalf, and he acted through the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, the icon, the physical manifestation of God among us, and able to satisfy a law that we could not satisfy, and he did it all one way, and that was through the blood of Jesus on the cross. No other way. That's how it happened. Paul does not make anything about the teaching of Jesus. I mean, Jesus came and he ministered for many years and he taught. He taught like nobody else had ever taught before. Jesus spoke the truth. But Jesus' teaching could not save us. Paul, when he's describing the core of the gospel here, he doesn't even mention Jesus' teaching. Right? Forget the notion that Jesus came to be a good teacher and that if the world could just follow his teaching, then we would all be fine. That is not the gospel. If you think that Jesus just came to be a good teacher like no other teacher, that will not save you. And Paul makes no mention of it. So you can't represent the gospel of Jesus as Jesus just being a good teacher. All Jesus' teaching did actually was repeatedly show the religious and the pagan both that neither of them could keep the law. Right? His teaching wasn't saving anybody. Jesus' teaching was actually condemning people, and that's why the Pharisees hated him. Because he would say, he said, you think you're righteous because you don't murder? Really? You don't hate anybody in your thoughts? You don't have any hateful thoughts? That's what the law really means. Or he would say, you think you are so righteous because you don't commit adultery? But what do you think when that woman walks by on the other side of the street? And the Pharisees hated him for his teaching because he kept pointing out to them that they were not keeping the law. He said, you think you keep the law, but you're not. You tithe on mint and cumin and on your spices, and yet you ignore and forget the greater aspects of the law, like mercy. So Jesus' teaching was not to save. Jesus' teaching simply accomplished the same thing the law did, which was to show us that we could not be saved in and of ourselves. And the Pharisees hated Jesus for his teaching, because it condemned them. And Paul makes nothing here of Jesus' example which is another popular, kind of a too popular explanation of who Jesus was as a man. That Jesus was somehow just a good example. That if we could all just, like teaching is one thing, but we need an example. And if we could all just follow Jesus as an example as how he lived, and especially as how he went to the cross, and how he never fought back, and how he was a pacifist, and he allowed them to do whatever, and he refused to resist. That if we just took on Jesus as an example in his life of passive non-resistance, and we just followed his example, then the world would be at peace and God's kingdom would somehow come. That's what Jesus was for. Jesus was here to give us an example. That was his purpose. Paul makes no mention of Jesus' example. That's not how God is reconciling the world. That is not how God 
is bringing people from darkness into light. It takes more than teaching. It takes more than an example. We have had thousands and thousands of years of good teaching and good examples, and are we any farther away from our fallen nature than we were thousands of years ago? Are there somehow fewer wars going on right now, less refugees, less abuse? No. We have all the teaching and all the examples we want for as many thousand years as you want. We will not move ourselves from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light or redeem ourselves or restore our relationship with God. So Paul doesn't talk about the teaching of Jesus. He doesn't talk about the example of Jesus. He says there's one way that God is doing this through Jesus. The cross. Jesus had to die, shed blood for our sin to reconcile us to God. Jesus came for the cross. John the Baptist said when he was prophesying, he came ahead of Jesus to announce the arrival of Jesus' coming. And when he saw Jesus for the first time, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who is going to be a great teacher. No. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who's going to be a super example for us. No. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. That's what Jesus came for. One thing, the cross. And so when Jesus told his disciple Peter that he had to go to Jerusalem in order to be delivered to the authorities and to be killed, you remember what Peter does. He denies it and he says, No, Lord, that can't happen to you. I, you need to stay and teach us and be a better example for us. And, and like This is a good thing we have going here. Stay with us. But Jesus says, No, get thee behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Because Jesus knew why he came. Not to teach, not to be an example, but to go to the cross. And Acts 20.28 tells us that the church was purchased by the blood of Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul says that he preaches only Jesus and Jesus Christ crucified, which sounds foolish to some and causes others to stumble, but it is all he can preach because it's all that is true. And Paul wants this church in Colossians to know the truth. It's by the cross of Jesus Christ and only by the cross that all of these things God can make possible for us by his love. And then the fourth thing, now what is it that God has done and who has he done it for through his son Jesus on the cross? What are these things? And consider here as you're reading, this is very important in verses 21 to 23 as you're reading this later on today or looking at it now, notice now the shift as Paul moves from all things that are reconciled and he starts to use the word you. In verses 20 to 21, he says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Paul says it's you It's you, it's you that God has acted first for and through his son for, on the cross for. What has he done for you, for me? Remember back in verse 12, he says he qualifies us. So I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're sitting here and you're feeling unqualified in some way. Like there is no way I qualify for heaven. There's no way I qualify for the love of God. There's no way that God could love me. I know all the things I've done. I know all the things that have been done to me. And there's no way I qualify. I am not as good as I could possibly be. I'm not nearly good enough. 
But God has acted to qualify you. You don't qualify you. So if you're feeling unqualified today, rest in the qualification of God the Father through His Son. He has qualified you. Or maybe you're looking at qualification differently today. Maybe you're trying to qualify qualify yourself in the wrong way. And you're thinking, well, if I just work a little harder, if I just clean my life up a little more, you know, I'll come to Jesus sometime, but I've got to get a few things right in my life first. If I just get my life organized and I get myself qualified, then I'll be okay. Give that up. Paul makes no mention of that. It's not what we can do for the Father. It's what he has done for us. He has qualified us. So don't worry about your qualification. Just come to the Father through Jesus. In verse 13, he says he delivers us. And maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you need rescuing, right? Maybe you're feeling at sea or you're drowning or you're in darkness or you're in a situation you don't see the end of. You don't know where the light is at the end of the tunnel or if there's a light there, you know it's a train coming, right? But you need rescuing. You need delivering because we cannot get out of this darkness on our own. In fact, the Bible tells us that our hearts love the darkness secretly and sometimes not so secretly. Right? We pursue it because we think it's going to fulfill us somehow. And we think the darkness is great. And we love our little addictions and our little habits and our little harms and wrongdoings. And, and we covet them. And we need rescuing from that. And God says, I will rescue you from the kingdom of darkness to light. You cannot get out on your own, but Jesus can set you free. It says in verse 14 that he redeems us. He paid our debt. That all the legal and financial or other obligation, however you want to qualify what you think that you owe under the law, because the law of God has condemned you and you think there's no way that price can be paid, he uses the word redeems. And he uses that word specifically because he says, I've paid that debt, I've nailed it to the cross, it's paid for, it's done, you don't owe anything because of what Jesus has already done for you. And so if you think you owe something, let Jesus pay that for you. In verse 14, he's forgiven us. He's dealt with our sin morally. Paul is trying to counter, it's trying to attack this from every angle he can attack it. He says, you are qualified, you are rescued, your debt is paid, you are, you are forgiven. So if you feel morally dirty, you feel morally convicted, Jesus has dealt with your moral sin on the cross. You're forgiven as well. And you are reconciled. Qualified, delivered, redeemed, forgiven morally, and reconciled. You're thinking, I can never have a relationship with God. He is so holy, and I am so unholy. He is so distant, and I am here. He's up there, I'm down here. There's no, there's no, I can't have a relationship with Him. I can't speak His language. He won't ever want to talk to me. Paul uses his language, reconciled. He's healed the relationship so that you can have a personal relationship with Him through Jesus on the cross. So He's restored the personal relationship. And then He says, He's, um, moved us from the kingdom, although you were alienated from him. So he is, I've turned it around and said unalienated, which I don't think is a word, but I've used it anyway. He's unalienated you. You used to be alien to God. You were from a foreign country. You had no business in the citizenship of heaven, and God has unalienated you. In other words, he's repatriated our citizenship that we lost with Adam when he fell, and we have regained the citizenship that Christ has in heaven. And so Paul has gone through this, what is that, one, two, three, four, five, six different ways he has tried to reframe and rephrase the reality of what, Paul, what God has done, the Father has done through the Son. But the final one, perhaps the most important, the last one that Paul lands on, 
Not qualification or forgiveness morally or, or redemption of under the law or reconciled the relationship or unalienated us from a different, you know, however you want to look at it, whatever you need today, Paul's got it in there. He finally lands on this. He says he presents us before God blameless. Ultimately, this is the accomplishment of the cross, that we are able to enter into the presence of God. That's what the gospel is. That's what forgiveness is for. It's for us to be brought to God. And we can't miss this reality of the gospel. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ died for us, that he might bring us to God. That's why Christ died. Why did Jesus die? He died so that he could bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The only true gospel is that we are forgiven in order to get God. Nothing else can be the ultimate purpose of the gospel. And that's what I mean by that, and and what I say is that because forgiveness could be desired for many good reasons, but not necessarily the best reason, and you would miss the gospel. Consider the right reasons for forgiveness in a more human way, and I'll explain this as a way of closing. You imagine if I have offended Wendy. So I come home from work sometime, and you know she's got her back turned to me. It's a fairly common situation, actually, that I offend Wendy. Because <laughs> I, you know, I screw up a lot. So, so I come home from work, and she's got her back to me, and I'm literally getting the cold shoulder, right? And there's many reasons in that moment that I want desire forgiveness. I need forgiveness from what I might think like I, I need her to forgive me because I'm not going to get supper tonight unless I get this solved, right? And it's good that I get supper, but that's not a good reason for forgiveness, is it, right? You know, or I might want forgiveness from Wendy because I don't like the cold shoulder. I don't like how I feel. I know I've done something guilty. I know I've done something wrong and I don't like feeling that way. And so I want forgiveness so that I feel better, right? That's a reason to want forgiveness. It's not a good or best reason. You know, or or maybe Wendy's family is like super rich, right? Like they're like, whatever, the Rockefellers or whatever, and, and they got all this money. And I'm thinking, you know, if Wendy and I are kind of on the on rocky ground here, then maybe I get cut out of the family will. And there's a lot of good things, rich, amazing things in store for me that I get as a benefit of being part of her family, right? And so I don't want to lose the benefit of being part of her family, so I want forgiveness for that. That would be a really wrong reason to want forgiveness. The reason we want forgiveness from our spouse is why? Because I want Wendy back, right? I want forgiveness because I want the relationship. I want the person restored. And that's the gospel. That's where Paul lands here at the end. He says you can be forgiven and you can be redeemed and you can be transferred into a new citizenship and you can have heaven and everything else. But Jesus died to bring us to God, the Father, so that we have God. That's why we want forgiveness, so that we get God. And if you're thinking about God or the gospel this morning is somehow that, you know, thank you God for forgiving me, but you can take a vacation now because I got what I want, then you're missing the gospel. You know, I just wanted to get into heaven. I'm happy now. You know, or I just wanted that feeling of guilt to be gone. Or I just wanted my marriage better. Or I just wanted whatever. So I'm, thank you God for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus and thank you for forgiving me and all that stuff because I feel better and I know I'm going to heaven and life is so much better. So you, you know, I don't really need you anymore, God. But thanks for the forgiveness. Paul says, no, it's not. The purpose of the gospel is to bring us into the presence, blameless into the presence of God. We want 
forgiveness. We want what Jesus has done, not for all the things it gets us, but because it gets us God. And that's what we have to have in our heart. That's what has to set us on fire and fill us with joy, is that we get God out of this reconciliation and forgiveness and redemption and requalification and repatriation into the citizenship of heaven. That's what we got. That's the gospel, that we get God. We desire that relationship with God and we receive it. And the evidence that we understand that glorious reality of God, the evidence that we actually get the true gospel, and that's the desire of of our heart, that God is our treasure that we want above everything else, is that it sustains us and we continue in it. That we act, the evidence that we actually understand it is that we never leave it behind for any other cheap other gospel or other God. Trusting in God just for the things we can get from Him won't sustain us. Your faith will shrink. You will be prone to wander. You will be distracted by other gospels and other gods and other idols and other ways of living your life. And so Paul finishes off by saying, if you heard the gospel the way we proclaimed it, if you get it that Jesus died to bring you into the presence of God, then you will not drift away from it. You will remain steadfast in it to the end. The good news is that God took action through His Son by the cross so that we could come blameless into His presence and we could get God for eternity. And if that's where your faith lies, then don't let it move anywhere else. And if that's where your faith lies, it will not move anywhere else because there is no other news that's better than that. Because our heart thrills to that. That what Jesus did on the cross gets us to God. For eternity. That is the best news in the world. That our sins are forgiven, that the debt is paid for, that we're reconciled, that relationships are restored, that there's healing, that we're qualified. That is all terrific news. That is fantastic gospel good news. But the really best gospel good news is that we get God. That's where the heart of the gospel lies. That God acted on our behalf to restore our relationship with Him. That's the gospel that Paul wants the church of Corinthians to understand. That's the gospel that he wants us to understand. And everything that he now writes in the letter is based on this amazing truth of the good news of the gospel. So if you're here today and you don't understand the gospel in those terms, then come talk to me or talk to somebody who brought you or whatever. Lots of people here want to explain the gospel to you. They want, to understand, they want you to understand that you're qualified and you're redeemed and you're reconciled and the debt's been paid for you and it's all been done by Jesus on the cross and he's able to do it because he is God. God loved you so much that he did not send an angel to die for you. God loved you so much he died for you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the just amazing truth of the good news of what you did. And I thank you that, that Paul never visited the city of Colossae because then he had to write this letter, and we get the letter. So thank you that he never made it there. Thank you that he wrote this letter filled with your Holy Spirit. Thank you that this is the truth that we have in knowledge, not just some emotional feel-goodism, not just some philosophy or ethic or moralism. This is the truth of the reality of who you are and how you love us. And it's a free gift that is right there for us to take. So, Father, move our hearts this morning. Move our hearts towards you. 
that our faith is built on the knowledge of this truth and this truth alone. And this is the foundation we live our life on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.